0: Music, and I mean music. You did not walk up Albany Road all the way to Saskia Avenue, all over St. Paul's, without hearing all kinds of music. Mick Jagger, everything, not just reggae, American blues, Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding, everything,
1: music.
0: So even if we went to town on a weekend, two o'clock when the clubs are finished, and we came back to St. Paul's and raved till the sun came up.
2: That was Michael Ritchie, who grew up in Albany Road in the 60s and 70s. More than a decade later, the Albany Centre was carrying on the tradition.
3: So, my name's Alan May. I used to run the Albany Centre with my wife Janice from 1987 until
4: 91.
3: The thing about the Albany Centre was to provide the sort of arts that you'd expect to see in the city centre. So like the best quality theatre, music, dance, you know, the best touring theatre, some amazing jazz and world theatre. We used to have two nights a week, Friday and Saturday, public performances. It wasn't really a Bristol-wide thing. Um, it was it was uh, Montpellier and St Paul's and surrounding, surrounding areas. I was in charge of programming and then a range of um, public workshops. We used to work with other venues and put on the touring theatre that was going around, but we also had any rare treats that happened to come in. The Bavarians of Gujarat were a troupe of 12 men who, who arrived something like 10 in the morning on the Saturday and, and really just took over the place. They were fantastic. There were three of the men who were the women in the show. They were very, very flamboyant. We had another guy who made the tea, you know, so this very strong, lots of condensed milk and their you know, sugar, uh, very delicious, and rattled your tooth fillings, you know. Um, and they got this huge local audio. I mean, it was very local for that show. Um, and we, we were turning people away. I'm a jazz fan, so we had Andy Shepard. We had a wonderful gig by a young tenor and soprano sax player called Steve Williamson. He was touring his quartet with jazz dancers called IDJ, I Dance Jazz. They attracted a huge audience. We we had them performing on this uh, homemade stage system that we had. And halfway through their routine, the whole thing collapsed under them. So they, they, the dancers, the bands carrying on playing, cleared the, the, the wood out of the way and just danced on the floor surrounded by the audience. It was extraordinary. And the other image I have of that of that event was the audience had gone. We we were clearing up, sweeping up, sitting down, having a having a last beer about one in the morning. And the pianist comes, walks in, and there's an upright piano. He starts playing, and then we've got the whole band playing acoustic with the doors open. And I remember two people kind of coming back from party or back from the pub, and they're like standing, jaws to the floor, watching this classic sort of late night. Uh, blues being played uh, on, on Shaftesbury Avenue, fantastic. We had a, you know, we had a team of volunteers that that uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to run it. Local people who um, used to come and sit at the phone and answer phones, you know, during the day, or would tear tickets on the door, or usher people, or. If we had a big night, just make sure people weren't bunking in through the fire escape. Without that local support, it would be impossible because it was just Jan and I, you know, being employed there.
5: If you read the numbers out as we go up, seventy-five. As we come up this little bank, That's plus ninety. See how the numbers are increasing
2: significantly now, aren't they? Albany Green was originally built on, but the houses and shops became derelict and were demolished.
5: So, probably the front walls, old walls of the house are on there, and probably the inside floors there. We'll just take a few more. On a sunny
2: afternoon in 2016, residents are surveying the green with the help of Tony Roberts, an archaeologist.
5: We're on Albany Green in an area where in the late 19th century there was a row of five houses here. That have long gone I think they were uh, removed in the 1960s however their footprint should still be under the ground so what we're doing is using a, a machine here that uh, is a technique called earth resistance and it puts a little electrical current into the ground in, in regular spaces and we can therefore determine where there are walls and where there aren't walls so hopefully we get a little underground map or an x-ray if you like of those old buildings that were here in, um, in the in the 19th century
4: there.
5: What readings are you getting now? That's 88 that was. So we'll probably come off the buildings now, look, and into what were, or was, the the back garden area.
2: Alan May ran the Albany Centre with his wife Janice from 1987 to 91, bringing a huge variety of arts into the neighbourhood, including on Albany Green.
3: And as part of the year round programme, we did um, a summer a fair on the green, which had stalls, which had live bands, but it was, a, it was an outdoor party. We used to have um, an outdoor stage for local bands, but we also used to get theatre groups doing, doing street theatre. There was one memorable year um, where we had the Black Mime Company, very, very funny, and they did uh, uh, this wonderful outdoor show about black vampires. It was on a stage and all around the edge were all the local kids all just like staring in awe up close. Uh, but the turnaround was instead of drinking blood they snogged. The whole audience just whoosh, disappeared. It was hilarious. At that time there, were a lot more, lo- there was a lot more theatre that was touring around. Uh, there, was a be- uh, there was better funding.
2: Albany Green was also key to St Paul's Carnival the venue where Montpellier and St Paul's kids headed out.
3: Uh, The wonderful Peter Minshaw, a great Trinidadian designer, was instrumental really in getting me involved in carnival. He'd been brought over to run a carnival camp for St Paul's. Now remembering at that time, most of the carnival was the kind of on the back of a lorry type carnival. Um, traditional Trinidadian carnival is on your feet and you'd only have the band on a lorry. I like that. I don't like the lorry thing. I don't like the fumes. I don't like the, all the worries about kids falling under the wheels and it can tend to be really static. So I thought, well, we need to get the schools involved in a walking costume project. So we got a team of artists together. So we had a team that went into all the schools and then all the costumes towards the weekend would come to the Albany Centre where we would finish them off. We would assemble on Albany Green and then take off from there. I did have a moment on Stokes Croft a few months ago where uh, this very muscular man came up to me and went, hi, hi Alan. And I finally sort of went through my memory bank of images and with his prompt, I realised he was from this, this lovely family in, in Montpellier, so he would have been seven or eight, and we're talking like 30 years ago, aren't we? So, that yeah, that's, that's really nice, you know, and uh, um, lots of good memories.
2: Ken, the landlord at the Star and Garter, and Ronald and Louise, who live on Lower Cheltenham Place, and Richie, who grew up on Albany Road, remember what was on Albany Green before demolition. So when you came in 1960, what was on Albany Green then?
0: Shops on that side and garage this side. The trees only planted about 1984, 83. Well, there was no green there, it was all houses along there. You know, and shops and pubs. We had the uh, uh, ironmonger, paper shop, fish and chip shop, green grocer. All the lot, just along Brook Road and Albany Road and Shashbury Avenue.
1: On the green, there was a white shop. The lady name was Mrs. Dufty, and it was a grocery shop.
0: Miss Duffy, that, she had a grocery shop on the corner of Brook Hill. There was a shop there I call Dufty Shop. Anyone from St. Paul's would know Mrs. Dufty Shop. But they used to have those... Boxes, what used to have all the biscuits in and the broken one in different boxes and you go in and get, throw me worth a sweet uh, biscuit and things like that, you know.
1: And she had a son named Roy. So if you go there, pick up your grocery and you can't manage it, Roy would bring it down for you.
0: <laughs> Mr. Clifton took it over, who I only found out years ago that was their son. He was really good to us. He used to wash his car on a Saturday for Bob a job when we was in the Cub Scouts and all that
1: and then cross the road by the pub, there was another white shop there, the name Sullivan.
0: Next to the store and garden, there was a sh- shop there called Ted's Shop. Next that was Mrs. Williams' Bakery Shop. Next to that was the hardware store. Next to that was a chip shop.
1: On the other side where the school is, there was a shop there that sell baby clothes.
0: Sewing, aberdashery stuff, needles, threads.
1: Any little thing you want, you could run there to get it.
0: And it was a lovely little community, didn't have to go far. Everything was in kids' sending distance, because everybody sent the kids. So, you know, it didn't have to go far. It was brilliant.
2: In the late 80s, Mrs. William's shop was still going, as Alan, who ran the Albany Centre, remembers.
3: Um, but I've got a particular fondness for Mrs Williams, she used to have a little hot display area with her and she used to do this amazing homemade cooked fish, lots of bones, you know, flatfish, a Jamaican recipe, you know, looking for an alternative lunch, if you weren't going up to Herbert's or the farm shop, it was around Mrs Williams, um, I mean she did she did patties of course and dumplings that were a real treat, you know, and she was just a lovely
0: character.
2: But relationships weren't always good with the shopkeepers.
0: Ted's shop used to serve you last if you walked in. A lot of kids got a lot of beating because their mum would send them to the shop and wonder why they're so long. And the reason was was that we'd all go in, three, four, five kids would be in there before me and you'd be serving us and then in would come the other customers and you'd serve them first. And we'd be all stood there waiting to be served. And the more people that came that he knew, we were still left last. But he changed, he, he, he changed. He, he realised what was wrong and people like my stepmom pulled him up and he was no longer serving the black kids last.
2: Montpelier Mosque, or Islami Darazga, Bristol, was the first mosque in Bristol and is open for daily prayers.
4: My name's Tahir Mahmood, I'm the chair of the mosque in Montpelier, which is uh, 109 Lower Cheltenham Place. This was the, the first unofficial mosque that was set up by the first Muslim settlers in Bristol. On a Friday, which is the main Friday prayer where the whole congregation attend, and that's when the Imam will give a, a sermon, you know, usually about current issues and how we should be working together and what needs to be done in the community. That's actually set on a Friday. For the Muslim community, this is, is the social hub. The mosque is where they get together and find out how, how somebody's doing or if someone doesn't come to prayers. Oh, someone says not of it. I wonder if he's okay, you know, I haven't seen him for a few days. Uh, my father was one of the founders, so they got together, they raised some money, and they bought this small terrace house. There's no minarets or domes, you know, it's just a house. So you couldn't tell from looking from the outside that this was a mosque. That was approximately 1969 to 1970. Uh, my father came from uh, Pakistan. He was in the British Army. Uh, he was a field nurse, and... Being a field nurse, he was, I think, in the 60s or 50s, when there was a need for laborers to come to this country. I think about 10 years later, he sort of invited my mother over. So the family came over in, in the 70s. I came here probably 1976 when I was very small to learn the Koran. So I came here amongst another 30, 40 children that were being taught here at the same time. In the early days, about 40, 50 people. It's dramatically changed since then. I think we're, we're touching about 120 now. As you can see from the carpets, we stand in rows. Uh, so we've got rows of approximately eight to ten people upstairs. So we've got another six rows downstairs, and usually about 20, 25 people outside in the garden. We've got a, a quite a steep garden, you know. And I remember the elders telling me that they actually dug it by hand. You know, the, the, the back rooms were actually dug out by hand, and it's incredible that those people would have, would have been working long shifts. A lot of people worked at the foundries, but they would. You to know, sacrifice time to actually come physically work here as well to get this place set up. I think when we generally the first communities came to this country a lot of them were just men that didn't have their women folk with them so there wasn't any thought about provision for the women folk due to cultural reasons the men and women pray in separate rooms because we've only got a single entrance here we couldn't do it in this place They've had to go to eastern or further afield up to uh, Totterdown. So we needed a place where we could accommodate our mothers and sisters. So we bought it. It was a public house in uh, Sevier Street in 2007. Unfortunately, we found the place wasn't uh, structurally strong enough. So we had to knock it down and start again from the beginning. It's taken us nearly six, seven years to get to the stage where we've got a shell of a building now. But hopefully within the next year or so, we can do the internal works, you know, plaster it and everything. And hopefully by end of this year, we should be in there. It's been funded entirely by our people who come to this mosque. So they're very generously, you know, putting away some money each week. And for, for a community of 100, 100 people, to raise approximately a quarter of a million pounds to, to build a new place just shows a commitment and the, and the legacy they want to leave for their children in the next few next few generations. It would be sad, you know, leaving here, But uh, a new and bigger place will obviously make us a lot happier as well. Somewhere we can uh, attend with our families. And one of the advantages of a new place is that we're going to have a social area where our elders can just sit down and have a chat to each other, sit down with the newspaper and somewhere we can socialise as well. So it's been a a growing curve for myself, coming here as a student and ending up being the chairman. So uh, it is a privilege. you know, someone to actually trust you to run the place is, is, is a very heavy burden, and I don't, I don't take it lightly. <laughs> it has been a, a happy memory for me, and hopefully, lo- looking forward to passing the you know, the baton on to somebody else, somebody younger, who can take it on for the next 50, 40 years.
2: The mosque has always had a great relationship with the ever changing community on Lower Cheltenham Place. I'm
6: Anishka and um, I live in one one four laird Chatham Place. The mosque is opposite us, and um, it's lovely. I've always loved it. It's just like wow, you know, a glimpse into like another life because there's such a big community there, and all the kids know each other, and there's big groups, and we always say hello. And it's, it'll be sad when it when it moves. It actually really will be because it just it's great it being there. It's, it's like a gathering point. It really adds to what's going on around here. In the
2: 80s, a Georgian terrace at the end of Lower Cheltenham Place was derelict. Then Nightstone Housing Association took it on and rebuilt everything
6: behind the listed façade. And it's actually my mother's house and my nan died last year and uh, my mum then moved out. And um, we spoke to Nightstone and they allowed me to take over the tenancy. It's just me and my daughter and my, and my dog <laughs> and the fish in the pond and the frogs.
2: <laughs> Residents went to Bristol Records Office to find out more about their houses. Paul also lives in one of the Georgian houses now owned by Nightstone.
5: Uh, 92, Lower Chapman Place. I always thought that they became derelict during the war, but this is a directory from 1956 and there are people living... Living in the houses. So it must become derelict after that.
6: The terrace is a community in itself. I can remember playing in the back quite a lot on my little trike and a bit like how my daughter's doing now. Probably like four families for kids my age. I'm still in touch with those people now. I see them growing, they see me growing. People have really set their roots here and have made it into what it is. And that's been through a lot of hard work and conversations and a lot of like arguments on my road but you know no hard feelings but it's just been like a progression and and that in its sense has woven the community together
0: one love, one aim, one destiny. Hi-ya. I remember we used to have a
6: lot of like uh, street sort of parties, but at the back of our drive, people had like um, umbrellas um, and they had drink stands, and everyone was just there having a good time. It doesn't feel as though we've done that in a while, and maybe we should. <laughs> The top here is doing an interview about the area, of like what people remember.
2: Adam is Anoushka's older brother, who was walking
6: past Albany Green. I remember my brother had a, um, a St Paul's party at the back of all his sound systems. Which didn't go down well with the neighbours at the time. <laughs> I think one of the neighbours still remembers that. Yeah,
5: I, I done my own party in the back lane. Must have had about 200 people came in. God, it must have been about well 10 or 12 years ago. Yeah, neighbours didn't like it too much. But <laughs> yeah, it was a carnival day thing. until yeah. nine o'clock the next day. Proper party.
6: <laughs> there were a lot more children back then. We did a lot of like Halloween trick-or-treat treating around the area. We'd all go round to 1, and I'd always be dressed in bin bags and everyone had their makeup on, face paints, we'd have our little pots, and we'd go around in like a a group of maybe 15 children from all around this area. I think at one point we threw eggs at someone's door, we were all in a big group. Um, never did that again. (laughs) I really do love it here. I love that sense of history and rebelliousness and it's just, you know, I get it, I get it here.